0: Welcome to the hashtag no shelf control version of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I am today's host and my name is Josiah. And on today's episode, we have an ordained pastor, a spiritual director, a co-founder of the Center for Pastoral Formation uh, and Retreat in St. Louis, Missouri, Michael Palmer. Michael, how are you doing? Josiah, I'm good, man. How are you doing? Oh, you know, just uh, living that Nazarene life right now, which is, which is a thing. Which we, I, I'm not going to get lost in the weeds. I'm doing as well as could be expected given the current state of affairs. But we're not going to talk to you about that today. This is our special hashtag No Shelf Control version of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. Which, by the way, I would love your feedback on on that name. We we democratized it. We we had people suggest it, and that was. That was the name that, that stuck. It seems like it's on brand, but do you struggle with shelf control as a uh, ordained pastor? I don't think I'm allowed to answer that question <laughs> without
1: uh, without repercussions coming back on me. So I'm gonna say no,
0: like no. <laughs> I mean, we, we don't air the video of this podcast and we do this over Zoom. I don't see a bookcase behind you, which is probably 50% of the interviews we do. I see a bookcase. So you can kind of say that without me. I don't know. I don't know if I can really challenge your. I mean, your the software. truth is, what's
1: that old meme uh, that talks about? Uh, oh, I, I I Well, we'll just say this. We'll just say this. All the memes about buying too many books without reading the books you have, they all are they're way too personal and direct about me. So
0: hmm. uh, yeah, I'm offended by all of those. I had a professor, which I don't know, maybe for safety, I shouldn't say the name of the professor cause that it, you really don't know anymore now. Um, but the professor had wall to wall ceiling to floor books uh, and shelves like custom made that literally every vertical space in his office was covered with books. And so he'd often get asked, have you read all of these? And his response, which was technically not a lie, was some of them twice. <laughs> and so it was like, okay, I don't, at some point I just challenged him like, okay, that's just such a, you're you're deflecting. Have you actually read every book? He's like, well, no, but I have read a good portion of them twice. So it's not technically a lie. So that's, well, a little. I mean, if you want to, if you've ever been asked that, that's where we don't see a bookcase behind you. If you've ever been asked that, that could be a really, you know, very safe answer. I've read some of them twice. I respect the heck out of that answer. <laughs> I'm using it. Do it. Oh. Well, did we miss anything? You you got a lot going on in your personal life. I know you got some kiddos. You're married. Is there anything else that we would uh, we would be remiss to know about you before we dive into you as an author? Uh, no. Kind of the entire thing we're doing right now is that it's the center so we're
1: we're starting this work to do uh, spiritual direction. We have some folks that we're meeting with right now. Uh, we do spiritual formation cohorts. Currently, those are local, all around the practices and prayer and discernment, those sorts of things. Uh, and we have yet to have any retreats in the books, but those will be coming up shortly. Um, that we'll have retreats for people to join and be part of. And so um, that's kind of just been everything right now as we we have we moved from the north bay uh in california uh in august of 2022 so that's been the other big thing is just adjusting to life after the move and all so
0: which as a family with younger children that's no small step
1: it's not uh, i'm endlessly impressed with my kids though you know they felt all the things because they're full humans they're just smaller right i think we forget that you know so they felt all the grief that elizabeth and i have felt but i've been endlessly impressed with all the ways that they adapt and they cope and they they've grown through this process too so i'm
0: learning as much from my kids as i am from anybody which which is a, a fun a fun reminder that's grounding i think my children helped me so much not just through covid but my mother passed away um in that season in in that year that that year the year that will not be named um and just having to i remember talking with my wife about it having to change a diaper was weirdly grounding cuz it just brought you back to the reality of like you still have to take that next step you have to continue moving even if you don't want to you just need to get out of bed and do something right like and having little needy kids was weirdly helpful in a in a way that was oddly therapeutic even even with changing messy diapers yeah oh man
1: there's so many ways you can get outside of yourself and care for others It just happens that in this part of my life, one of the strongest um, ways that I'm reminded to not be uh, too self-involved is the care of my kids. And I do it so imperfectly, but they're such
0: gentle and wonderful teachers too. So it's been an act of grace. Yeah. Patient and long-suffering, whether they want to be or not, because they didn't have a choice in who their parents were, right? (laughs) (laughs) You think my wife may gently remind me that sometimes, like, well, they didn't get to pick you as there? I'm like, yes, yeah, that's true. That's probably right. Um, let's 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 shift gears. I'm fascinated by this book. I have some personal anecdotal observations that I would love to get uh, to at some point. But we do something that's a little bit silly in the in the name and heritage of this podcast. We have some false stereotypes. We actually had you on the show. It never aired, and I think we fully did this like millennial stereotypical thing with you and did all the silly things like hey do you love avocado toast do you spend too much money on coffee and not enough on retirement there's a i mean we could talk about avocado toast there's a thing now that i just had to do and i will i will admit this you know after i ask you to earn your millennial cred to prove you're a millennial because we didn't get to do this before we're doing it now um When's the last time? What? I I should say what. This is how confident I am. And if I fail, if I was wrong, then that'll be embarrassing. But what is the last thing you looked up on YouTube so that you could understand how to adult? Oh, man. I
1: just did this like three days ago. Oh, God. Well, the background to this story is I am not uh, mechanically minded, but I really want to be. Like, off the air, you and I were talking about how do you just remodel stuff and, like, you wrench on cars. Uh, I want to be you, and I'm just, what? Okay, so, just a fa- FaceTime me next time. No, I know. Oh, well, I had the, uh, the um, oil pressure sensor go bad on my van. Uh-huh. And so, it's like, well, I'm just going to see how hard this is. And I looked it up, and I was like, I think I can do this. And I did it.
0: So, YouTube for the win. Helped me adult, it was great. Hashtag adulting. So mine was, was a remodel adjacent actually. I, and this gets really like inside baseball, so forgive me. Basically there, you can buy windows at, you know, a window store at Home Depot, but they come kind of set up for new construction. But if you live in a house and it's not new construction, you're having to retrofit new construction windows to existing construction which the process was something I was unfamiliar with, despite being the son of a contractor. Um, so I had a YouTube like, what is the actual agreed upon thing for this approach, right? And the, the funny thing is that it also then gets specific to state and construction type and what the wall's made out of. And I spent probably two hours watching how to install window videos on YouTube. It was ridiculous. But after that, I felt like I could do it. And guess what? I installed a window. Nothing broke, and it's not leaking. So we both did it. Hooray! But I feel like I feel like in in the spirit of authenticity,
1: I should say, as I'm doing this, uh, I had to borrow a tool from my neighbor <laughs> neighbor Gary because I didn't have the right one. Oh. So uh, you know, I, I I adulted, but not as much as my neighbor adulted. So, well, but he was generous and kind because he's a good man. That's so, nice. Didn't rub it in. My-
0: Look at that! We're suddenly all intergenerational. That's fantastic. Uh, one other fun, and I'm not gonna guess because I, I think I I need to change this game a little bit. The first two guests we've had on this show, I was a little bit better at guessing, especially since you know the subject matter and the cover uh, helped set it up. Your book, Trenches and Tables. For those that can't see, we're gonna put a link in the show notes, but a very, a very generic explanation is that you see what kind of is reminiscent of like a World War One trench. That's what I see when I look at it. I don't know if that's what you're going for. Um, But then in the corner, you see Eucharist, you see communion, you see the table, right? And it's kind of this really fascinating contrast that sort of draws a person in to say, what are we talking about? And as this is, this is our, you know, silly stereotypical addressing things the segment of the show that that I'm going to change a little bit is let's judge a book by its cover so instead of guessing because you know I've I've written a book I had a lot of judgment based on my book cover and to be fair it did contain the image of Jesus and for some reason people have lots of feelings about Jesus and his appearance um I may have made Jesus look a little hipster for fun and there's reasons to it there was lots of judgment cast so i'm curious do you have a story do you have an example do you have one time where someone judged a book judged your book by their cover that you could share with us i think i think
1: that presupposes a lot of people have read my book <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely sure they have uh uh you know i think you could make a blanket statement it's it's less about the content of the book than about me as the writer of the book. I think a lot of people make assumptions uh, that I'm a super liberal person mm. because uh, I don't have a neat home uh, politically, just in general in the US. And I also um, kind of, well, let's just be honest, our denomination, I mean, Barna has shown this, so I'm not saying anything that's not whatever. We we are a very um, right, gently right-leaning denomination, and I'm not. So I think because of those factors, people often place upon me perceptions about liberalness. And I think if I had to guess what people think in their heart of hearts, if they ever think about my book, which is doubtful. But if they do, they probably assume that it's a super liberal, like
0: um, a liberal manifesto. I mean, it, it's ironic to me, that's one of the questions I asked the previous two authors, why are you so liberal? Like the, in this segment, that's that's been an ongoing thread and the responses have varied all over the place and <laughs> often it's like, I'm just trying to figure out what Jesus taught me to do, which weirdly, uh, imagine this, it doesn't fit into a political camp very well, right? Like no political party has ownership over this, which which is fascinating because I think that's that's much of what your book Lays out for us your book trenches and tables. I'm going to butcher this. Please correct me. You kind of kind of do a thing where you try to establish the state of the church, at least in the United States, and its tendency to dig trenches. And by trenches, I mean you you could pick low hanging fruit and just simply talk about, hey, you know, there was an election in 2016, and the church kind of got lost in the weeds about stuff potentially, and really entrenched themselves into a particular uh, political paradigm that that was really, I don't know, unhelpful maybe for just having conversation that was more nuanced. Um, but the second half of your book, you shift gears and you talk about kind of uh, this idea of how we could still meet at the table. Uh, I, am I butchering this? Is this, close? is this close to what your book is talking about? Yeah, I'd say it's very close. The kind of
1: context that Maybe it's interesting to nobody but me. But when I wrote that, that book, you know, the first half is the problem. The second half is an attempt to process a potential resolution. I Definitely am not arrogant to think I'd propose the resolution, but it's my attempt to kind of work out what that could look like. But as I wrote the first half, which has stats, and it talks about um, hot topics and divisions in the church, it was at the same time that people were beginning to really understand how algorithms worked in social media. And that, uh, and I remember how shocking it was the first time I, I realized this, that my Facebook experience is different than yours, which is different than like the 80 year old faithful congregant in your local church. And so they give you more of what you want, not more kind of the wide range of reality. And so, uh, That first half, I try to talk about the ways we're divided. I try to process how we've failed um, historically at the the church to confront some of the issues and problems we've had. And then I do my best using Jesus and Jesus' teachings uh, to process what would a healthy, diverse unified not uniform unified body of believers what would that look like on a loop so spoiler alert it's a lot like communion
0: okay spoiler alert <laughs> i want to i want to get to the table portion of your book but let's let's start with the the, the first half of trenches cuz i observed what i would call a algorithmic anomaly in you um and i know this book has been kind of in your brain for a long time Uh, It's been worked on for years. I don't know uh, if, well, actually, before I share that, give me just a real brief timeline of like when you started thinking about writing this book, uh, when pen was brought to paper, when it was published. Can you just give me a brief chronology real quick?
1: Of course. So I've been a pastor. uh, I'm almost into, I'm almost at my second, uh, at the end of my second decade. So I've been a pastor for years, uh, but I was, A local pastor, my wife and I were pastoring a church and at a Nazarene conference, found myself really frustrated with the lack of conversation around a couple of issues that I thought we really needed to talk about. Those were sexuality and racism. We just weren't talking about it. And I was wishing other people would talk about it and grumpy other people weren't talking about it. And as the Spirit does, the Spirit said, why don't you talk? And so I felt this call to have these conversations online. And uh, over the next couple of years, I, I just tried to do that imperfectly, but as faithfully as I could. It was generally around those two issues, but it, it evolved into talking about politics, nationalism and sort of things like that. Uh, but then and as I was doing that, uh, I was invited to process and write a book about it. Uh, which didn't end up happening with that individual, uh, that 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 publishing house. But they introduced the concept of putting to paper things I was trying to practice in the online ministry that I had. And so then I accepted and I ended up writing this over the course of about a year from 2016 to 2017, which nothing really interesting happened in those years. But not nothing. Was, you know, yeah, very chill. It's a chill year. <laughs> uh, and I I worked it out in that year, and it was, uh, it was a really fun process of working that out. And then, um, yeah, so that was kind of
0: the backstory. I remember catching wind. The Nazarene denomination is not super big, um, and and you can find people on social media pretty quickly. I remember. You're, and this goes back to the algorithmic anomaly that I would say you are, what, what the, what you've talked about in your book and what you were just talking about before was that you create the super individualistic experience on social media that has people falsely assume the trench they're in is full of people, right? That there's just so many people that think exactly the same way, view things exactly the same way, vote, have the same opinions, et cetera, et cetera. What you were doing, though, in my opinion, and I don't know that this is provable or not, was you were talking about things and showing up in timelines that was jarring for folks. Like, hold on. Hold on. Pastors can't say this. Hold on. Pastors can't think this. Hold on. You're not you're not agreeing with my, you know, late night talk show hosts opinions of the you're not what the cable news guy didn't say that. And and it became like this viral sensation within our small little Nazarene denomination and share it all over the place. And there's a couple posts that I think back specifically to that were just like, Holy cow, next level. Like, you know, it it surpassed just our denomination and it's how viral it went. But um, the thing that was fascinating to me that really was captivating as well was you were trying to charitably engage with everybody instead of drawing lines in the sand. You were even thanking people who literally were raking you over the coals. And like, thank you for that opinion. I can understand why it's scary. like you were empathizing, sympathizing with folks that were literally calling into question whether or not you're a Christian, let alone should be a pastor. How in the world were you able to do that? I would have thrown my computer across the wall. And uh, I,
1: I, I did it because I was called to do it. I always really am. Um, uh I'm super careful I think I I believe in like the mystical call of the spirit on the life of the minister to give what the minister needs I I'm a, okay so for enneagram people I'm a 9 so there is some
0: some like just personality to that please tell us what enneagram 9 means just for those that are not is what a peacekeeper okay
1: so it means I I I can Uh, I can agree with it be uh, become like anybody that I'm around. It also means I eat my feelings and that's a whole different conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So there's some natural like um, tendency towards it, but I really do think the spirit was really faithful in helping me in those moments because there were really some cruel things said at, at points. Uh, But it, it was a very interesting experience to as the world became more and more polarized and as as political conversations became more toxic, to talk about the gospel became more and more risky and had harsher and harsher pushback. and so that was certainly an experience uh, that that was one of the more draining parts of doing the work was the response. I, I stepped away at one point in 2020 for nearly two years, and I'm only just returning and just an inside note. I don't, I don't really make a big deal about this, but I'm starting to write again, but I have no, I have no intent of engaging in the positive or negative feedback. I'm kind of just processing it, writing it and just letting it be. And for a while, we'll see how that goes. But I, it was certainly a uh, it was a draining part of the work and i don't think i
0: really fully understood until after the fact so you're immersed in this in you're, you're uh, in some way the first half of your book this this trenches half you're doing actual research and development so to speak right like experiencing this algorithm in real time understanding that there are all sorts of trenches that people find themselves in and you can't cross this line. You can't cross that line. And at some point they're so entrenched, they literally can't have a respectful conversation with someone they disagree with because, and, and perhaps as a part of this, you know, metaphor, we can continue to use that this is war, right? That's essentially what it is it's war over ideologies and you're an enemy if you don't agree with me. Um, but your book doesn't leave it there right? It's not just, this is the state of affairs. It's unfortunate. You, you do some things in the second half of the book that are very convicting. You talk about all sorts of stuff that, you know, weirdly enough, Jesus talked about, and it's like you reference him a number of times as well, talking about mercy and forgiveness and a number of other things that we sometimes forget when we get behind keyboards on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. But one of the things that I want to spend some time talking to you about, because I think it, it may be, and Maybe there's something else that you would point to instead, and maybe hits the head, uh, hits the hits the nail on the head in a way that we really need to reconcile with. We need to reckon with as the church, maybe evangelicals in general need to reckon with. It's that it's not about winning, right? In one of the last chapters, uh, I think it's the last chapter. You and let me pull it up. I want to make sure I read it. Like it's it's a it's a one liner that sort of reverberated, and it cap it was captivated me kind of really put a pin in things, but church, we are walking to almost certain death is the line. Like that it's not about winning, right? It's not about secre- Supreme Court justices, it's not about presidential candidates. It's not about Senate seats. It's not about rep seats. It's not about governorships. Not, we Jesus won by dying for his enemies, and that's the that's the call for the church. So Practically speaking, or just even, you know, intellectually, what the heaven do we do with that? How, what am I supposed to do with that when I've been trained and formed to try to win culture wars? Uh, As, as
1: when my long-term, my first and long-term spiritual director once told me, uh, there's a reason Easter comes each year. There's a reason Lent into Good Friday into holy saturday into easter sunday comes around each year and that is the reminder that we are invited into self-reflection into death and into life and there's it's really important that we remember that rhythm i think you know it's no surprise to anyone and it was part of the stats we talk about in the first half of the book the church in the church in the in the in the experience that we have known it and the form that we've known it is dying. Cultural respect is dying. Uh, you know, I all the I've, I always appreciate, about once a year, they make a list of the most and least respected. You know, vocations pastors are down there with like lawyers or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, we just don't command respect or anything. And I, I think we're grieving that. Understandably, it's it's right and good to grieve that. But we've been convinced that the way out of that is to take power instead of to follow the the Paschal, you know, the Easter journey into death and resurrection because there's risk in dying. I mean, Christ promises resurrection, but we still have to die. And what if we die and we're not resurrected? What if we lose power and we never gain it back? that's a really vulnerable place to be and so we would much rather fight for supreme court justices because that is a
0: more uh, that
1: leaves us in control to simply put it instead of surrendering control to the work of the spirit
0: i often wonder as as someone brought up with american evangelical influences how much uh of how much of the whole being dominant culture has actually informed faith convictions as opposed to Jesus because it doesn't ever seem as if Jesus calls us to vie for being a dominant culture um it just it doesn't seem like that's ever once the call um in fact it's quite the opposite take up your cross deny yourself follow me it seems to be uh, much more in line with what he says his followers should be about um but It's not something that's easily disentangled. And so part of what I see in your book, and I would just ask you, you know, to unpack this a little bit more for those that might be interested. There's there's a grieving process. There's a lament that might need to take place when confronting the reality of that. Um, And and I'm wondering. I'm wondering. Maybe who, who is doing the actual grieving and lamenting? Are we talking, this book is for pastors. This book is for denominational leaders. This book is for lay people. This book is for folks that have left the church altogether and don't have an affiliation with the faith community. Who is the, we, that this book is for.
1: Uh, I'm always really quick to say I wrote the book and then the book's been calling me to account ever since. So it's not a book that I wrote because I had settled these things in myself, but it was a hope of what could be as a good Wesleyan, the optimism of grace and optimism of what could be and what the spirit is leading us into. So that's the posture. It was written. in. It's a, it's a, it's a belief in where the spirit desires for us to go. As for the, we, I think it has to be, uh, it's a call for all of us. It's a call for anybody who desires um, desires the invitation that's being offered by God. And so the book is for everybody. I tried to make it accessible to anybody um, who would find the book and want to read it, and I tried to make it something that is applicable to everybody. But at the end of the day, the worst thing that could happen for me hearing about like if i heard how the book was being used the absolute worst thing i think for me is to find out people were using this book as a weapon that they were sending it to the people they disagree with and like you need to read this uh because you know so it's i think my hope is that it's for each of us that it's a call for each of us to uh do our own interior work and our own interior journey and that we can live into the call, not expecting other people to do that, but to live into it our own selves.
0: So to weaponize it, that, that would be a failure for you if someone uses it to say, hey, this is this is why I'm writing you wrong because it kind of misses. <laughs> you, you lost the plot there. I think that's not what I was trying to say. That would be your biggest fear with this book? That would be pretty rough if I'm being quite honest. So what's a win? Um I, I've actually seen I've seen numerous endorsements of folks posting about how this is timely, needed, insightful, helpful, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't I'm not so concerned about what someone posts on social media. Um, what what's just a practical shift in, I don't know, daily living that you think uh, the average Christian in the United States could pivot from and towards? Uh, based on, you know, the research you've done, what you've written, what's a simple step that that's been pre-baked in because of American evangelicalism that might be a nice little side, side route, side quest that we could start to go down instead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not a, it, it's a pretty
1: core part of the book. I know. But <laughs> my, my desire is that people find the grace of God at work in the practices of the church. in and specifically uh, the sacraments, the sacrament of Eucharist, the, the choosing to not look to others, demanding they change, but to allow the spirit to humble each of us individually and call us to change and to begin. I mean, the world is filled, the world and the church is filled with dehumanizing language. I mean, we use words for people that remove their their uh the amago day and instead turns them into a caricature and then we can hate on them and we can be violent towards them and you just can't do that when you go to the table with somebody who doesn't hold your political ideology because at the table it's an admonition that we all are in need of grace and so. I mean, my honest desire is that it's a call to recognize our own common universal need for the grace and forgiveness of God, and that become the unifying force rather than some issue that is the hot button issue of our time, which unifies us around common
0: exclusion. Which which tempts us to then put qualifications on who deserves grace, right? I think that's ultimately... The most convicting part of this, you know, both what you write, but just thinking through this, uh, this applied is once we, I I can't, I think it was, you use, you use certain examples in the book, was cockroach one of them in your book? Yeah. Yeah. Once we use something like that, we've almost in, in no uncertain terms said that person is unworthy of grace, right? I mean,
1: yeah, and I, that's not something I came up with. That comes from the work of Brene Brown, um, her, her book, Braiding the Wilderness. She, quoting other scholars, talks about dehumanizing language and uh, she names it as common enemy intimacy, that we are intoxicated by unity around mutual hatred. So we really love, we watch our, you know, cable news anchor. And we find a thrill in them hating the same people we hate. I mean, it gives us a biological response. And uh, we even, she's quoting secular scholars and and scientists. They talk about how as humans, we're wired to not want to be violent towards each other. like Where we are naturally resistant to harming violently, hurting physically each other, but that we get around that biological instinct by removing the humanity of other people and we do that through calling people cockroaches, calling people fill in the blank because when we do that they're no longer a person, they're an animal and when they're an animal we can do whatever we want to do to them and so it's uh, it shows up over and over and over again in varied and
0: dramatic ways and simple ways underhanded ways but it's there and in the unifying image of the table and the image-bearing reality totally challenges that, totally confronts that and and it reckons, it forces us to reckon with our own biases, our prejudices, our our bigotry and realize, oh wait, Jesus actually died, um, offers salvation, died, rose again, offers salvation for that person just as much as Jesus did it for me and now I have to reckon with that. Um, simple, but gosh, what a liberal you are for saying that, (laughs) right? How liberal of you to say that people are image bearers of God. It's like that's in the Bible though, or something. Oh my goodness. Well, Michael Palmer, I don't know if we covered all of the things in your book, but I would recommend that folks buy it and read it and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Is there anything else we didn't cover any little, I know you've, you've made the podcast rounds, so it's probably all blurred in your head what you did or didn't say on on each of these interviews, but is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to share with our listeners? I think it was great, man. I appreciate the, the invitation and I always enjoy the conversation. Well, I'm glad you were able to make the time for us. The book is called Trenches and Tables and it was published by A Plain Account Publishing. We didn't even mention that. I think this might be the second A Plain Account and a uh, little bit of self selfish shameless self-promotion I think you all are millennials publishing millennials if i'm not mistaken is that is that yes. true
1: yes and i really i really want to like give a real quick shout out i was officially the second book published by a plain account press the first is a book of prayers published by uh brent neely honest to goodness it's incredible it's 365 prayers uh roughly loosely uh ordered by the church calendar like i bought it and it's
0: incredible so if you don't buy look you should buy his book this is we interviewed him in january actually he was our very very first uh no shelf control he's the one that helped us decide what to call it so you can blame him if you would like for not liking the uh the the segment name but a plan account press that's the official name for the publishing house awesome well thank you so much to a Planet Crown Press, but also thank you so much, Michael Palmer, for giving us some time to understand both your own journey, we, this, what this book is about, and giving us food for thought about how to proceed in a world that seems exceedingly tumultuous, full of all sorts of trenches. Uh, your work calls us to sit at a table instead of entrench ourselves and continue to be at war with those that we've decided we don't like. So, uh, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for uh, inviting this liberal to go. It was an absolute joy. This has been Hashtag No Shelf Control, uh, a podcast from the William Pastor Podcast. I've been today's host. My name's Josiah. Join us next month for yet another millennial author.